The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to Lit Up. This episode, we have Lucy Green. She's written an incredible nonfiction book that couldn't be more timely. It's called Silicon States, The Power and Politics of Big Tech and What It Means for Our Future. Now, the title is quite self-explanatory. Big Tech is Google, Apple, Amazon, Facebook, and I'm sure you can think of others that fit into this group. She's going to tell us all about why, you know, their increasing power is really going to affect our futures and that before we kind of give over our data, our lives, before we all get um, get fully connected in our homes, we should kind of ask ourselves a few questions. Today on the pod, we have Lucy Green, and she is the author of Silicon States, The Power and Politics of Big Tech and What It Means for Our Future. Hello, Lucy. Hello. So I'm lucky enough to be in Lucy's apartment, and I think it's one of the hottest days in New York we've had, and I've asked her to turn off all the air conditioners. (laughs) So we could heat up as the conversation, you know, gets into it, but that's okay as well. <laughs> um, so there's a lot you need to know about to tackle a topic as huge and momentous and as critical at this point in time as you have. So I want to kind of dial back and can you explain what you do at J. Walter Thompson and how you got to have this kind of incredible title as futurist and global kind of trend, I wouldn't say maker, but kind of an analyzer of trends. Sure. Um, I I just consult my horoscopes, basically. (laughs) No, no, I started off in journalism, actually, and journalism is my my background. And then um, early on in my career, I moved into futurism and trend forecasting, which is kind of a similar skill set, uh, albeit with a slightly different approach. It's like it's like saying what's going on and then what are the implications of this and what, what's going on quickly and identifying the implications. So I worked at a company called Future Laboratory in the UK, uh, which is this very groovy uh, futures consultancy in Shoreditch, um, populated by very clever, very hip hipsters. Um, and then at JWT, I had up the Futures Think Tank. And I've always like studied the future and cultural change, but through the, the lens of a, a kind of marketer or a brand. So my role at J. Walter Thompson is to look at innovation in various different sectors, look at changing consumer mindset and how that changes by generation, um, but also look at zeitgeist shifts and and really ladder that back to brand strategy. So sort of, I mean, it's sort of, it's a cliche, but I talk about forecasting desire, right? Sort of what consumers are going to want and need. And so the context of how I've always looked at these brands, um, big tech, that is, 
is as brands. So as these amazing companies transforming the consumer experience, making the way they communicate, making the way they uh, experience entertainment, making the way they shop, super efficient and and growing and and becoming part of our cultural lexicon in a remarkable amount of time. And the inspiration for the book was when a couple of years ago, I saw a transition from that into something much bigger and something... Um, that was governmental, political. Um, they were moving into the civic space and also th- talking about life and our life cycle in a way that was kind of um, irreverent or talking about extending life or fixing aging like it was just another problem or efficiency that need to needed to be made. And I really ex- extend that into my approach to the book. Like I'm not a tech insider, I'm not a government insider either. That's that's the point. Like I come at this very much as a as a forecaster, but looking at it from from our perspective, from consumers, and sort of really trying to make sense of this change um, in in the bigger context, rather than being sort of someone who's like at the coal face of working in tech. So let's define who big tech is for you in the book and kind of in the world, because obviously it kind of gathers in a lot of companies, but there are these behemoths that are, you know, the size or bigger than governments. Sure. So, I mean, the obvious is like GAFA, as as they've even got their own acronym. Um, So Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon. I would include... Um, Airbnb, I would include Uber, but really Silicon Valley has started to, um, or for a long time actually now, holds a bigger significance and it goes beyond geographics, um, geographic location. So Amazon, of course, is not based in Silicon Valley, but it feels like very much a Silicon Valley company. Snapchat is not based in San Francisco, and is, but is very much a Silicon Valley company. So I look at um, Silicon Valley, the concept, this group of highly funded tech companies that have transformed our lives and become very, very much embedded in the consumer experience um, in the last 10 years. I would say from uh, the resurgence of Apple pretty much uh, onwards in the 2000s. And let's learn a little bit about Silicon Valley because, you know, when people talk about the internet and how that was formulated, it was a military exercise. And in the book, you talk a lot about how a lot of innovation or a lot of the investment in tech came from governments themselves. Right. When did that shift happen that it went from being funded by the government to them almost taking on a life of their own? Right. I mean, the government actually continues to fund some research and projects. So Elon Musk may get a lot of the fame for uh, space exploration, but that is a lot with government um, funding. But there has been this transition. So it's true, Silicon Valley started off as helping, working with the US military, um, linked to industry, and then the next iteration was being integrated into sort of business, right? And um, They're like microchips, like IBM. Right, exactly. And really the, the turning point in all of this is the birth of technology as a consumer product, right? So... Um, from from Microsoft on was really, um, I guess, in the 1970s and, and 80s, and I, I would say IBM as well, like because it transformed the relationship with technology in in consumer lives, but it also transformed the way 
the messaging attached to um, technology. So not only did we see computing and later the use of the internet um, and later cell phones um, go from something sort of quite fringe or something quite businessy to something that in, is in everybody's lives and is used for work and play. But in order to market these products, you saw the birth of this sort of rhetoric and messaging attached to technology uh, that it was more than just technology, more than just a function. And, and it's that that led to really the likes of, you know, Don't Be Evil or Facebook's famous like connecting the world or Airbnb's concept of belonging. Um, you see the birth of this sort of real um, marketing spin attached to quite f functional or what would have been quite functional products and therefore this mythology surrounding the power of technology, which I think really feeds into this. Well, and you mention that there's this association with freedom. Right. And actually, they've done a really good job because when I was thinking about all the companies you're mentioning, you do equate technology with freedom. I mean, I feel like our phone, we're slave to, slaves to our phones now. Sure. But it also allows us to be anywhere. We're allowed to work anywhere. And yet we're so tethered to these things now. Like when did that the freedom and kind of that you talk too about the paternalistic aspect right yeah so it, it is funny you know the early days of the internet it was viewed as this um symbol of freedom in this way to escape corporate surveillance ironically it's um you know a lot of the counterculture in San Francisco kind of fed into that and the libertarianism. It was, you know, the internet was seen as this counterculture tribe of ideas where you could do what, whatever you want. And it has kind of slowly been corporatized, but oddly that mythology and that language has, has continued. And a, a lot of that is, I guess, still relevant. Like it is amazing that you can still have your phone on you and like look up any piece of information for free at any given time um, and multiple different other innovations that they've made. Uh, but I think as these these companies have become quite so big, they've started to rub up against things like um, legislation and regulation. And um, so in order to get the public on their side have uh, relied on these sort of similar tropes in a very binary way. So it's kind of it's become a case of, you know, when Google goes into battle or Facebook goes into battle, it's like, you know, if, you, if you're not pro them, if you're questioning their anti-competitive behavior, it's like, well, you're anti-business, you're backwards, right? Or um, in the, the case of the Spanish lawyer that tried to get his, his details taken down in the case to be forgotten, um, Google's argument was very much like, well, the internet is freedom and don't you want access to all information? It becomes very, very binary. And so they've almost like co-opted and moved this language that doesn't have any place now because they are surveilling us um, into as a way to circumnavigate criticism. Well, and you mentioned things being free and I hadn't, I think I was at a brunch recently with a lot of tech people that work in tech. And one of them said, well, if it's a free app, then the exchange for anything free in the tech world is that they're mining all your data. Like, why do we think that, you know, 
tech is so benevolent that they would just give us things for free. Right. And that's kind of propelled by them, I would say. You know, this kind of, they, they also, alongside these messages of freedom, they they also talk about themselves as almost as sort of sentient beings. You know, they can't be bad. They've, they've tried to really actively position themselves not as corporations, which is essentially what they are. You don't get energy companies saying that they're doing anything other than, you know, giving us energy and like, and that's, that's just what it is. Um, so they've kind of made a rod for their own back. And I think what's really interesting is that the difference in experience in relation to that between something like an Amazon and a Google and Facebook. So Amazon is, is comparatively private in, um, in when you when you relate it to the sort of overarching altruistic messages and slogans um, propelled by Google and Facebook. So um, of course it publicizes what it does, but it doesn't attach any mythology to what it does. It just simply is an amazingly consumer-centric functional engine. But you see that as a result, they're not held to quite the same scrutiny or people aren't quite as outraged. So when you look at Google and Facebook, we're kind of outraged that they have done something immoral or outraged that they've done something bad or interfered in, a, in an election. Whereas when you read headlines about Amazon treating its workers badly or paying them poorly, um, we're, still, we're not quite as sort of, uh, of critical because they're not making quite the same promises. But you're right, there is like quite a consumer naivety and I think it is driven by that marketing sloganeering. Like, you know, I don't think consumers really do think about the fact that they're receiving this like amazing service for free or, you know, they're having all this access um, to information or able to communicate with their friends or able to Skype their families for free and that there must be some kind of business model attached to it and that is partly driven by their own marketing on its own like so they they have to make money somehow and what's interesting is that the, the people that I'm speaking to right now is we, we've sort of been asking each other the question like would you pay to use Facebook would you pay to use Google would you pay to use Twitter like I actually would pay to use Twitter I actually would pay to use Google. I, I think a lot of people would. And um, but I think you're seeing this sort of cultural tipping point in the sense of people being shocked by the level of intimacy that these intimate knowledge these brands have because they haven't been quite so transparent. But to be shocked by the fact that they need to make money is 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 naive. Um, and I I don't know where to what to do with that. Well, I think I told you earlier before we were talking that I went to TED and this journalist hooked up her entire home with everything you could that, you know, had a Wi-Fi signal. And she hadn't realised, she even had a vibrator, but she didn't realise that because that has a Wi-Fi signal for some you know, reason. <laughs> you all need connected <laughs> vibrators. That's what... <laughs> that is what was coming out of this entire conversation. But she learned that even that data was being pinged to home base. Like what, I guess, what setting it was on, how long it was in use for. And it was kind of an, an example. I mean, she said she paid for it, mm. but... She had also figured that because she had paid for it, that there wasn't a kind of data gathering component. So really, 
even now if you pay for an app, it's still collecting everything. Oh, yeah. And uh, uh, coming back to that like lack of transparency, I don't even think it's lack of transparency. I think it's lack of proactively pointing things out or using, in Facebook's case, really elaborate legal jargon to disguise the reality of what you are in fact letting go. And, you know, I, I'm 37, so I'm one of the... Um, I guess technically what you would consider the oldest definition of a millennial, like I'm the oldest person who could maybe in a hair's breadth consider themselves a millennial. <laughs> and I joined Facebook in my um, 20s. And at that point, it just felt like such a sort of, I had no idea what it was. It was this new thing. I actually left Facebook like three years ago and I felt kind of uh, during the um, during or connect, uh, at the very beginning of this book and I kind of, I was looking back on like joining it and what I thought about social media and I, I felt annoyed. I felt quite betrayed because I'd uploaded basically 10 years of my life <laughs> um, to this thing and I didn't understand as a consumer what it was. And I think that's what we're all doing kind of now. Like we don't really know the full extent and I think it goes way, well, I know it goes way beyond what anyone would even like assume or even the most conscious consumer would assume in terms of data sets becoming um, accessible. I mean, I just saw a report even yesterday about Facebook seeking people's personal financial data in order to help them tailor advertising um, more um, in a more personalized way. So I, I do think consumer literacy of this stuff is is an issue, coupled with the fact that as a result of all this data that they're giving over, there are amazing um services and, and seamlessness to, and personalization that they're receiving. So we might be at this point where everyone is starting to maybe criticize Facebook or criticize Uber or Elon Musk, but there's a big disconnect between that and anyone signing off from these things. Like that, you know, I, we're still, they're, they are consumer propelled products and uh, it's because they live in service of the consumer and very, uh, very much reactive to that. So with everything that is a little bit scary that they introduce, so verbal recognition, visual recognition, which is rapidly being combined in, in all sorts of speakers like um, the Amazon Echo Look, which is a voice operated uh, camera and Alexa all in one. There are these amazing efficiencies that are incredibly seductive. And so there's this, uh, I think there's a, a confusion about what to do about that. I texted a friend today when I was kind of pulling out quotes that I loved, was that in China, you can go into a KFC and pay by just looking at something how does that work right it's um the ali pay um smile to pay um oh, smile yeah smile to pay um and so the the visual recognition technology is so advanced that it's able to not only identify you but understand specifically what your expression looks like and and therefore that is your so your body is your physical ID and you're seeing that happening across the board but also in policing um so visual recognition being able to assess faces in a crowd um it's becoming your financial ID 
So um, Apple iPhone X, again, you use your face to open it, which again is this like really, really cool thing. Anyone like me who has struggled to get into their bank account uh, using, I have UK bank accounts and US bank accounts, and I have a million different other um, goods and services in my life that are app-based and I have different passwords for every single one and it's a nightmare every time and I pray to God one day that there is something much much more simple but then there is something quite sinister about a private company having that granular knowledge of your physical makeup that um that your your genetic makeup basically is your financial ID. Well it's like we're all James Bond characters now you know with all the kind of iris recognitions you know all the things in these films we've seen is now for everyone not just the special agent right one of the one of the interesting things to me when you think about this moment in time is how holistic um these technologies are becoming um you know the internet and the way the whole way we interact with the internet thanks to things like alexa and visual recognition technology and the internet of things as in like connected fridges cars um you know sofas (laughs) bathroom mirrors is that the internet is kind of becoming like the air around us, like super intuitive. It learns from us. It reads our expressions. We can talk to it. We don't even even need to type. It's becoming, but but that puts big tech as like kind of like, like the intermediary to consumers' entire lives. They are the complete intermediaries to existence now. So everything is sort of becoming like a data point, right? And um and something that we're not, as it becomes more, it's a bit like Big Brother, like the show, when people get like um, desensitized yes. the cameras there and then start shagging yeah, each other in the room, like or Love Island, um, more recently in the UK, you kind of forget about it. And it's that unconscious handing over of data, which I think is is super interesting too. Like they've already talked a lot about Amazon Alexa and how they're sort of listening to us and um, and our... our again the basic lack of like con- consumer transparency on 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 that so you know that brings me to this kind of idea although all or at least i get asked a lot like why you know what's so different why why is big tech different to the industrialists or like big pharma or even these big consumer brands you know like coca-cola and and McDonald's, this has been ever the case. We've always had these big indus- industrial titans and people and big industries uh, moving into lots of different spaces and um, having more political influence and and having cultural influence. But what's interesting is how Silicon Valley sort of occupies all all three. Like like I said, it is becoming this intermediary to the entire consumer experience of of life from finance to their experience of the city as they build cities to schools to their healthcare to their shopping habits to their their personal communications on on whatsapp um you unlike uh farmer and other big industries that we have now that lobby government, the leaders don't have the same cultural influence. These leaders aren't being cut on the covers of every single magazine and deitized with festivals attached to them and what they do. So there's there's the, the lack of cultural influence. And then when you think about even like a Coca-Cola or a McDonald's, McDonald's knows when you've bought a Happy Meal, uh, 
you know, Coca-Cola knows when you've bought a Coke and thanks to social media probably knows like when you've like posted a picture of yourself having a Coke. But it doesn't know that you checked your horoscopes in the morning. It doesn't know when you called your mum. It doesn't know when you said to your mum. When you last used your vibrator. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It doesn't like there's this. So there's this incredibly concentrated and intimate and ongoing knowledge of every sort of aspect of the way that you live, which is super interesting. And then in relation, if you're talking about power, you know, um, it used to be when you think about power balances, you know, there was like the Wall Street was finance, right? And Hollywood was movies. And Farmer was, I don't know where Farmer is based. It's based in sort of some hell um, somewhere. Let's put it over the Midwest. And um, so, and then, you, you know, just suddenly you have this very, um, it's not a singular industry anymore and yet it's incredibly concentrated in one area and being funded by in, from one area. So you have Silicon Valley moving into health, into energy, into banking, into space travel, um, replacing Hollywood, replacing the media. Like it's this, it's this very multi-tentacled and increasingly joined up um, industry. Um and then all who coming are the guys? from this one orb. Yeah. Right. And then who are these leaders? Like what you pose this question and you're like, Silicon, well, I'm gonna it's not even a question. You say Silicon Valley has a women problem. Yeah. But I'd love to relate that to what you've just said about these deities. Like they're all these kind of nerdy white men. Right. And how when a group of people who are so kind of like one another are controlling so yeah, much. Yeah, so I mean, there's a few problems that with you have, um, to begin with, you have and Megan Smith, who is the former CTO of the US with Barack Obama, um, spoke a lot about this. She's also a former Googler. You have this powerful narrative of success being attached to white men leaders uh, as saviors and singularly to white men and they are the ones on the covers. And I think that on its own sends these messages, which are really bad. And um, in the next year, actually, what's interesting is a load of books have been picked up, like the sort of hidden figures of Silicon Valley. And I think Brotopia kind of scratched the surface on this, you know, how actually a lot of innovation that came or massive innovation that came out of Silicon Valley was from from women. I spoke to Deborah Cleaver, who's the founder of Vote.org and started her career at... Um, MySpace, and she talked about how actually Silicon Valley's roots before it became so money, like such a money machine, was actually incredibly diverse and actually very welcoming and very um, uh, sort of uh, progressive. And so that's really changed in recent years. And the the interesting thing about these companies is that they try and project this very progressive image of being sort of appealing to all, LGBT friendly, um, very innovative, pro-sustainability, like intelligent brands to be um, associated with. And that's incredibly seductive. But the more I dug into it for the purposes of this book, like I really didn't see that many differences between the leaders of these groups and the makeup of these companies than the the governments that we have in place now, which are sort of old white privileged guys, right? Uh, that may, so maybe we've got like 30 something white privileged guys. And the difference is, is that 
you know, we feel that because these companies are brands that they are more accountable and we actually have more control. I feel, I think that people in, in democracies now feel a little bit out of control. So we think that we can control them. And we also think that, that what their intentions are and the way they execute things is broadly positive. But then when you look at, you know, I think there's rising awareness now of this idea of like the male gaze or like the sort of the of perspective, right? And the importance of diversity, and when you look at the makeup of these companies, which for all their rhetoric and for all the fact that, you know, like Twitter just hired ahead of intersectionality and diversity, um, is kind of changing at a glacial pace, um, if at all, right? So very uh, white and Asian male um, dominated, hugely sexist in, in the power structures and the way that they hire. And that, I guess that's fine when it comes to products and services, although I'd say it was unwise. But the thing that struck me and what I try and talk about in the book is like, I guess that is fine when it comes to products and services, but what happens when you have these subtle biases that already mean that we have, you know, Alexa is a female assistant, for example. In fact, all the verbal assistants are women. What happens when you have that kind of bias and um, implicit sexism writ large on the world? So what happens when you have white male, educated, affluent guys designing cities as they are with Google in Toronto? What happens when you have a, a majority white privileged male group of engineers working for Amazon or Jeff Bezos and, and Warren Buffett to recreate healthcare and prioritize healthcare? What happens in philanthropy when it's dominated by tech giants and tech billionaires and they're looking at life sciences and all this stuff, but it's very much being driven by a combination of Silicon Valley sort of skewed values, but also mainly being white male privileged guys. Like it, it like when this, as the scope increases, so do the distorted implications. Well, and also government provides a safety net. And I think you've got a great quote in there that Obama said, I think when he'd been criticized by Mark Zuckerberg, maybe, about, you know, government does the work, it's clunky because it has to take on board the interests of so many people, you know, beliefs, organisations, sectors of the population. And so it can't be as efficient. I mean, right. as like a tech, a slim kind of slim line efficient tech company who's just trying to seduce the kind of wealthy urbanite. Yeah, totally. Like, and I feel bad. Like, the government almost needs like a rebrand. We need like a sort of, I don't know, like a millennial T-shirt campaign for like the value of the state. Um, but um, he was totally right, and his speech really resonated with me in a, a lot of ways. Like, the there's a really um, unnuanced approach to problem solving that Silicon Valley take, and. The problems that they go after are usually ones with some sort of commercial implication. So they would say that Airbnb makes travel more affordable, but it's making travel more affordable to middle classes. And it's also, they would say, middle classes are more stretched than ever. They need more income. And um, Airbnb is a lifeline. Um, but in distorting rents and um, it, it, it is also pushing out poorer people from from various different neighborhoods and, and housing stock. Same for, you know, Uber. Uber is making taking taxis like more affordable for middle class people. But, you know, 
when you compare that with the government, it, there's not the necessity for a commercial intent. So like, you know, Amazon might be building a, a shipping empire, but it, it's the government that will go to the one town with a single resident in the backwaters of like, um, I don't know, the Outer Hebrides or uh, mountainous regions of the US where there's no commercial imperative to deliver postal services. They will provide that because they are a last mile service. Same for, you know, I just saw this week, um, there was a report about um, increasingly people using Uber as a replacement for public transport, which I guess is fine. And I have to say I'm a total hypocrite. I do too. I commute with Uber a, a lot. But that's displacing revenue from the subway system, which is affordable to to everybody and eroding um, investment in that and eroding the strength of that service, which is is available to everybody. And again, all of this stuff, I guess, is, is fine, but it's putting loads of pressure on the state. And it's also meaning that the people that are at the absolute fringes of society, that is precisely the point of having a government and the state and a safety net, if they become a replacement for those kind of things, then that's quite dangerous. Like you're going to have a big groups of people really left out. Well, and I think you're saying government needs a rebrand, but I think because of Trump, it's so interesting that this is this intersection because he hasn't done a great job for certain audiences, like me involved, you know, me included, about giving us faith in government. So almost at the time when tech is tech's influence and power is rising, yeah. it's it's hit when Trump is in power or when Brexit happened, when younger people feel more and more disillusioned with the government. So they kind of turn towards like maybe Mark Zuckerberg should be the next president. Right. And there's, I, I kind of tested this with our, um, at JWT, I'm lucky enough to have this um, survey unit where we can sort of conduct nationwide quite in-depth surveys globally. Um, So I tested the degree or I asked people like how, you know, I tested the uh, enthusiasm for tech leaders in political office and it was actually really high, although it lent more towards um, Bill Gates than Mark Zuckerberg. Um, But there's no doubt that like, you know, when you're comparing the role of the state or like how we look at the state and governments and and democracy and government services versus tech like tech owns this sort of very influential um role now it's extremely it's seen as innovative they get the job done it's efficient it's dynamic all these sort of really positive words and then you look at the state and it seems sort of by comparison quite slow and and clunky. And so while we might have moral objections or questions about some of this group, I think there definitely is a feeling, particularly among young people who were seeing in the US say they don't identify with Republicans, they don't identify uh, with Democrats, they don't really see themselves in the current political environment. Um, and yet these leaders and these brands seem a bit more at least responsive to their criticism, like at least Facebook responded when there was outrage. Uh, to its audience, not to government, um, but to its audience. So I think there's this illusion or belief that they, uh, not only that these group, this group is more dynamic, but that we have slightly more control as consumers. And I think that's because we've lost a bit of faith or feel a bit powerless when it comes to um, democracy. And of course, then we have like people like Theresa May and, and Donald Trump in, in, in power, which are not really in sync with 
I don't think many millennials in either um, country. What's going to happen as these the population ages? Like, I feel like the crush on the public sector for services is going to be huge, and yet it will have been eroding. Sure. So, I mean, you're seeing a lot of that creep happening. Well, it's not even a creep. Like, it's it's happening really quickly and it's being propelled by these companies. So it's kind of like a multi-pincer attack. You have um, the fact that the efficiencies that they're creating are removing revenue from, from government. So, you know, if we're all going to have driverless cars and no parking tickets and no, we're not going to speed, there's not going to be that revenue from parking tickets, which actually governments do rely on. We're using Uber instead of public transport. And so less money is going into those 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 services. Um, so you have technologies creating, uh, or, or the fact that artificial intelligence is going to make a lot of people unemployed and not just in the future or long-term future, but imminently. Retail is one of the biggest sectors now where we're seeing um, uh, unemployment as a result of robots and artificial intelligence. And that's going to extend um, into many different industries. So creating, again, more pressure on the state. And then you have the fact that these technologies also need more regulation and policing are creating new um, uh, policy um, questions that governments need to ponder. And to me, that's kind of a missed opportunity. Like governments could actually maybe find new ways to tax these companies, but they're not going to. Like we've got into this weird position where if you have, you know, Amazon, there's practically a sort of bikini contest in the US of incentives and don't have to, you don't have to pay tax um, to land their headquarters in any given in city. And yet if Amazon lands its headquarters in the city, um, it's been shown in the way that many other corporations, if they bring their headquarters to a city, they put new pressure on the schools, on the public transport, on the housing supply and many other different things. So there's this kind of pincer movement of like displacing revenue, ideologically taking influence and criticising government and also creating new pressures and so you have this sort of ticking time bomb when it comes to to ageing consumers. I mean, one of the things that I'm quite excited about, though, as a sort of way of hope, I guess, is that you are seeing now the rise of a new political or two political generations, let's say. So you have older millennials are now reaching candidate age. And uh, thanks to or in relation to, I would say, the Brexit and um, the US election result, are politically engaged, are starting to think about the systemic things that they've been tortured by. I mean, millennials historically have been really apathetic about doing anything like they, you know, very loud on social media, but not actually going to the polling booth, very loud about, you know, supporting um, parachutings and and uh, LGBT, but not really going out and doing anything. And now we're seeing millennials finally awaken and take control of their political influence. Um, at, and they are a tech-savvy generation. Um, so I quite like the idea of them entering office with this understanding of these companies and understanding of the implications of these technologies, but bringing a more responsible role to how you monitor and interact, uh, governments interact with them. At the same time, you have perhaps the most tech-savvy generation state becoming um, voter age. So you have Generation Z, uh, who are 12 to 19, they've, been, they've grown up not only with technology being introduced, but just completely fully integrated into their lives. So smartphones are just there, social media is just there. 
And this is coupled with this sense of massive activism and uh, they have a hugely, um, a huge sense of moral compass and an interest in world events. And so it's interesting, all the team publications have uh, news about the environment and the world and political change because this group are really politicised. So all in all, you've got not only leaders and voters coming into influence that are tech savvy and more um, socially responsible or ethical. And I have to hope that the combination of those two will mean that we kind of rebalance perhaps our relationship with these big, big businesses unless it's too late. Oh, I'm pleased because I feel like all the teenagers I keep meeting, you know, through very, I don't know, kids or friends of friends, I have the most incredibly complicated, beautiful conversations with them. And I really can't believe they're only the age they, they are because I certainly wasn't that engaged at that age. Yeah, they're really fascinating. I mean, for me... I spent the last sort of 15 years talking and about and examining the wants and needs and granular desires of millennials. And that kind of hasn't stopped. Like I'm every day, I feel like I'm in a meeting with a brand that wants to target millennials, which by the way, are 18 to 34. Generation Z has been a really interesting generation to look at. And I do hold out a lot of hope for them. But, and it's interesting, a lot of people think that they're just like an extension of millennials right because they see the tech habits and they see um the social media use but they're actually very different they grew up actually you know where millennials were raised in this kind of hyper successful buoyant time and told that they were brilliant and and then only to sort of reach the job market at the time of the economic crisis generation z's have grown up seeing their older siblings kind of flail And as a result, they are acutely aware of the future and the fact that they need to save, the fact that they need to work hard. They've also grown up at a time when it's normal to have a black president. It's normal to have gay marriage. Um, It's funny, you know, that, uh, you know, when it comes to older uh, voters, politicians are still sort of having to make the case or not that uh, climate change is a thing. That's That's not a debate for generation Z's and at the same time you have this incredible um incredibly intuitive understanding of technology and that informs like how sophisticated they are in terms of their attitudes to culture the world around them too you know I remember reading Grace Coddington's uh book about how she used to receive Vogue by post in Wales in her remote village this group have had access to the whole um internet and its resources from the word go and so you see the references even that they use in their creative work because they're very creative too ranging from like David Bowie to um the history of um medieval kings to whatever and they're comfortable being friends with people they've never met in these global um networks but when it comes to brands and politics they're extremely savvy and what I quite like is that they can compl- they're completely bullshit repellent they're, they're grown up in this mature marketing landscapes so they know when they're being sold to as you saw from when they completely rejected uh the reasoning for the shootings or for the lack of gun control in the US um they do that to brands as well they're the first to call out a brand for cultural appropriation even if it's even at its most nuanced and granular um level and so I really think that they could be uh, the change. <laughs> Thank goodness, because we need some hope. 
So we have to wrap up soon because we can't. We could go on forever, and we actually have wine waiting for us, so oh. it's on ice, <laughs> and it's probably ready now. And we should turn the air conditioning back on. But I mean, there's so much we didn't get to in the book. We didn't even get to Elon Musk and his like acid trip, which is such a bummer. Oh wow! Yes. Um, I don't know about the acid trip, but like, I just feel like he needs someone internally empowered to tell him how how he actually looks and maybe he shouldn't tweet. But. Shouldn't tweet. But I do want to end on, you've told us about how hopeful we can be about Generation Z, but in terms of a technology or one application that has kind of left you in awe, can you tell us about one thing so we don't, you know, stop listening to this and go through our phones in the river or, you know, something. There, well, okay, there are three things. Okay, and I great. really want to be, uh, people have said that they find my book scary and like, I guess it is scary, but like, I didn't intend it to be like that. I actually see a lot of what Silicon Valley is producing is like actually very exciting. And I'm an avid consumer of all Silicon Valley products. Um, so I think there is positive stuff uh, connected to what they're doing. I think it's just that it's without any control or accountability. Um, so I think most Americans would agree that healthcare is not working in favor of the American person or anyone outside of uh, that sort of wealthy subsect that can afford it. And so personally, when I saw that Amazon or Jeff Bezos and Warren Buffett were looking to... Um, reinvent healthcare and make it more accessible and fairer using things like technology and artificial intelligence. I thought that was really exciting. Uh, I went to uh, the Hyperloop headquarters. I mean, whether Hyperloop, oh, whether or not Hyperloop wanted. happens is another question. Um, but if it does, like there's something quite excited, exciting about reinventing transport and public transport. There really is. Like we've had nothing since the Concorde. And the, again, that brings me back to this sort of sense of vision and there is undeniably something very visionary and exciting about um, the uh, what these uh, industries and leaders are, are doing and taking on these big things and seeking to reinvent things, which we have lost, I think, a bit of sight of. So that is really cool. I also found the stuff that they were doing in education really interesting. And it, what emerged for me was this understanding that to be successful or to future-proof yourself as an em employee with these two things and they're, they're the kind of schools that they're backing really answer this. So on the one hand, you have things like the Minerva and that's in sync with what we see in the World Economic Forum, teaching you critical thinking, cognitive ability, um, empathy, learning how to problem solve and but do that to any given thing. So you have these sort of meta skills that will keep you going for life, whatever the industry and however the industry changes. And then you have schools like Udacity, that is aligned with Google, which is this sort of mini nano degrees that are about upskilling your technology skills and your understanding of various different technologies as they evolve to make sure you continue to be employable and able to use the latest tools and software. And I really see that as kind of the future of employment. Like we're going to continually need to update our technical skills as a form of just like, you know, getting your hair cut. Um, 
but also learn to be adaptable and apply a sort of a lens of adaptability and problem solving to new industries as they emerge. So I really think they're actually quite onto something with this more affordable but more um, futuristic view of like how education employment should change. And have you had any feedback from any leaders yet that have read your book? Like how how is the tech world or the Silicon Valley responding? I haven't spoken to any tech leaders or actually, no, I, I have a few um, who were featured in the book and, and overall it's been, well, no, just actually universally it's been quite sort of p- positive. I don't know if that's polite. <laughs> no, that's great. Um, uh, or, or provocative was the other word. So like, I'm happy with either. Well, I feel like it's like a lot of the people that have worked at Apple or Google who then leave and say, I'm not giving phones to my kids. Like, it's almost like you're in the world, but you're asking these big questions. I mean, I think the reason why the book is having the response that it is, is that this has kind of been laying low on everyone's different, on, on, on everyone's minds. Do you know what I mean? And I've just kind of maybe... I identified that latent concern or niggling fear or I've joined joined up some dots but like it's this is nothing that people are not seeing and experiencing every day and that's linked like as I said to my job like I'm about understanding how people are living and what their motivations are and how that's changing and and like tech is increasingly part of that and it's going to shape that even more going forward. Lucy, how can we follow you to see how the response to the book is and see everything else you're doing? Right. So I have the same slightly silly Instagram and Twitter handle, where, which I update. Uh, it's Lucy Luxury, spelled L-U-C-I-E, Luxury. Um, it's because my first job was in luxury business journalism. So that's just to explain. Um, otherwise, I'd really say uh, my team's pride and joy at J. Walter Thompson. We um, track all this stuff just continually, like my day job essentially is on JWT Intelligence. And so I'd really uh, suggest that everyone uh, has a look at that because we, we put everything there that is on our minds. Thank you so much and best of luck with the book. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I guess my big takeaway from this besides wanting to throw away my phone and completely disconnect, was just to be hyper aware of, you know, when I'm signing up for apps or purchasing something, just knowing that everything I put into a phone or into a computer really is there for the taking. Now, I don't know what we do with that, but this whole show, I think, has probably brought up more questions than answers. Let me know what you think. We can ask Lucy if you have questions and she can respond to you. So get in touch at Lit Up Show on Twitter and Instagram. (laughs) 